Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. Hey, um, so Danny, we're we're back here for another uh, episode of Gov Action. I want you to take a look around. Okay. The beautiful uh, Scoop News Group. Uh, our our high tech studio that we work. Our high tech glass enclosed studio, yeah, as, as a radio here. station yeah. used to say. Um, this is the last time we're we're going to be here. Oh. Yeah. Moving. They're, they're moving. They're moving uh, on up. They're they've they've got a big fancy place they're moving to on K Street. Nice. So I'm not sure. I like the symbolism of it, but you well, know, that's I, their I'm, now I'm expecting all of our tapings to be catered. Right. And well, uh, I'm I'm drinking a pample mousse. Um, <laughs> Lacroix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Nicely done. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but uh, you know, so since we're talking about the Scoop News Group moving, moving, yes, right, and the evolution of their organization, their need to occupy new space, it, it dawned on me that there is a story in. Fed world right now that's happening about uh, a number of organizations that are are being proposed for movement. One is um, the USDA um, uh, Economic Research Service, yep. uh, moving them from Washington to Kansas City. Yep. Another is the tail end of something actually I worked on in the Treasury Department, which was the creation of the fiscal uh, services, Right. the merging of the Bureau of Public Debt and the um, uh, financial management service into one. And along with it, they were going to consolidate offices into Parkersburg, West Virginia. Right, right, which is where the Bureau of Public Debt was originally headquartered. Right, and where their administrative team worked out of. And so part of the idea of merging the bureaus together was to save on some of the duplicative cost of running two bureaus. Right. And leveraging then the best but services. I saw the agriculture story in the news. What was the FMS, the well, Bureau of Public Debt the story? The Bureau of Public Debt thing, if I remember, I'm going to get these numbers precisely wrong, so I apologize. Okay. Right. Uh, fact-checking will Fact- not Pinocchios, these, I see uh, the Pinocchios. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll speak in general numbers. There were several hundred people who would be affected by the, the move. They're down to the last couple hundred people, or maybe even sub-100 people, and they're, they're talking now of finally closing the office in Prince George's County and making the folks... Um, is, that, is that Hyattsville, Maryland? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, not just making the folks... Uh, the folks are mostly able to work um, remotely, yeah. but they're going to require them to go down to Parkersburg, West Virginia, I think even like once a week or every other week for a check-in. Okay. And oh, that's, that's a interesting. five-hour drive. Okay. Uh, but but if I but I, and I worked on this a little bit when I was at OMB, right? And when you were at Treasury, and I remember, you know, it's interesting when you go back. So when was that merger proposed? I'm going to guess in the 2010 time frame. It, it, we started it in 2010. I think we formalized it in 2012, and they began implementing it in 2013. And I actually remember. I mean, maybe I'm me- remembering it only this way because we're talking now that the tell of the final date of your move was 2019. Right. And I remember thinking, gosh, that's long. And I remember calling Dick Gregg, I think, or you at the time at Treasury and saying, 
why are we moving this all the way out to 2019? And I think the answer that you gave, now I'm testing my memory, but I think something like Senator Mikulski from Maryland insisted on that yeah. to protect the interests of the federal employees and give them more time that lived in Maryland right. to plan for a quote-unquote forced move based on the consolidation. Right. Exactly. And there, there was also the, the other impact on the Hyattsville community. It was one of the few leased office buildings actually in the community, federally leased office buildings in the community. And you know, federal government's not a bad tenant. Yeah. Um, well, it's a really great, great example, this, this Maryland one, because, you know, you, you know, there's often a standard set by a lot of critics of the government that we should be as effective as the private sector is right. in, in managing our operations. And we should look to the private sector as like the beacon. And in many cases, I think we should and can, and, and then we can shape private sector solutions to government realities. But if you think about it, imagine a private sector entity that's looking to close and consolidate operations and and move to a central location and then and then that's happening and then they say and we're going to do it over a 7 year period mm-hmm. of that, that would be insane but in the government because our board of directors involves congress and there's local politics involved this is the outcome and this is some of the costs that occur in in making the move and i but i think that that's one of the problems with drawing that false or I'll just say the equivalence, I'll take back the false, um, the equivalence between the, the public sector and the private sector in the sense that the private sector is this continuously evolving, in theory, competitive market in which their new entrants and, you know, their, yeah. their, their exogenous shocks, whereas your public sector is supposed to be designed to be an institution that does evolve more slowly, evolves at the evolution of society, not at the evolution of a market. And so what's interesting... See, I would, I would take issue. Maybe we should have a separate podcast no, 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 I, where I we debate is, private sector versus public sector. I'm, I'm pro both, is yeah. my point. What I'm, not, what, what I'm not pro is the oversimplified application of, oh, well, we should apply... Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, you don't want to cut and paste it. I, I, right. I, I am a big believer that there's a lot to learn uh, and that the private sector often gets out in front with innovations for management and operations, how to leverage technology, how to, even how to think about real estate. Oh, absolutely. But a part of that is because of the competitive motivation and the fact that part of the assumption in the, you know, in the private sector world is it's okay to fail. Yeah. Right? Because when you redid the GSA space downtown with the Recovery Act money, right. and you like gutted the place and cr- made it much more uh, amenable to, to house more people, and you re envisioned like, how offices were constructed and hoteling and how people plug in and work in common spaces, wasn't a lot of that private sector in, uh, inspired? Oh, yeah. No, we definitely followed very quickly the model, particularly of consulting firms and the idea of hot desking. And yeah. we looked at the best practices in the private sector because there were no equivalent best practices in the public sector. So I, yeah. I agree with you. But my point being, though, that um, uh, your your government institutions are, are generally kind of designed to be longer lived, to be not quite as quickly responsive to um, shocks. Yeah. And your, your government worker is you know, brought in with the assumption of a, you know, the, the basic assumption is you're going to trade long-term economic benefit for security. 
Yeah. Well, and this is this is this interesting tension. I think we've talked about it on previous podcasts, which is, you know, there is this desire to to be good stewards of the taxpayer dollars, to to drive efficiencies, to modernize effectively. If you have redundancy in your in your offices across the country, there's an opportunity to, you know, to protect taxpayer dollars and consolidate. You know, in particular, I would point out that I think as as the world changes and we become more uh, more uh, information-centric and web-enabled and we're all carrying around iPhones and working more mobily, then, then in some cases, not all, operations in the federal government that used to be, that, that are regional, that used to need to be regional, in some cases don't need to be as regional as they used to be. Well, that, that's actually interesting. We, that was another thing we did at GSA was we collapsed the, um, the infrastructural aspects of the regional distribution. We were distributed across 11 regions, like yeah. most federal agencies. But in each one of those regions, we had a redundant personnel office, finance office, procurement office, you know, all the different vertically yeah. integrated different apparatus. And as a result, we had 11 different ways of doing everything. Yeah. So Well, we, that and that seems like a no-brainer. I'm also talking it, about... It seems like a no-brainer, it, uh, yeah. but it was mildly revolutionary that we did it. Yes. Yeah, no, and it was deeply controversial, and we had a lot of pushback from the Hill because there was this sense, are you trying to centralize the power in Washington? The oh, regional really structure... The regional structure in many ways has been designed to try to federalize the yeah. the, the power away from Washington. Yeah. Well, and again, it comes down to this question of if the business case is there to, to consolidate, to centralize, whether you're centralizing in Washington or Kansas City or Parkersburg, you know, there's there's these tensions of the impact it's going to have on the on the worker, the federal worker, the impact it's going to have on the local political area and the and the the mayor, the governor, the congressional delegation, um, and then how do you? What's the right way to resolve some of this? And the article that I was reading, I think it was in the Washington Post, on the situation in the Department of Agriculture was really kind of playing out that. The, the, the administration, the executive branch, see the, and the leadership sees an opportunity to, uh, to create a more efficient footprint, to rationalize, to close and move and consolidate offices. And the, the federal employee unions and the, and the federal employees uh, are worried about the disruption and the impact. Uh, members of Congress are getting involved. And you have this, what probably seems very familiar to you and me, a a, a kind of tempest of, of, of concern and tension around what to do. No, that, that's exactly right. I think, you know, I, I think... Um, and, and by the way, I don't think the same thing happens in the private sector. It at least doesn't play out as similarly. Think about plant closings. Think about, you know, think about... If, well, that's a good point. If you think about big, large employers like, you know... General Motors. General or Motors or... A, or uh, there was a big Sylvania plant up in Massachusetts. Oh, absolutely. No, you're right. It's a fair point. Mayors yeah. and governors, and you know, yeah, they do get involved. There's a big controversy about Nike, and actually, a state saying they're going to withhold money uh, for building a plant uh, in in their state you know, yeah. over a, a recent uh, issue. So I, I actually think what's interesting is that um, actually. Maybe the private sector isn't quite as pure and as simple and as isolated 
as 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 those who say the government should work more like the private sector, yeah, you know, sometimes think about right. And and what I say when people say government should work more like corporations, I'm like, well, which one? Yeah. What's your favorite corporation that you'd <laughs> like us to work with? There are some that you know maybe you wouldn't want your government to work like some, some of them. Well, yeah, I mean, not all of them are successful, and they make they make mistakes, and they and many companies go bankrupt, and right. and so I think the goal is to figure out what the smartest thing the government can do is to just be be smart about what goes on in the private sector, what works, what doesn't, yeah. and to call together those right. lessons learned, and not expect that if the private sector did it, it must be right. Right. But there are incredible things like whether it's kind of rethinking real estate and optimizing mm -hmm. real estate and changing their culture around that. Um, the, the adoption of artificial intelligence and robotics to drive efficiency, by the way, all of which have effect uh, and can be disruptive to the traditional way in which we work. Oh, no. You're, you're talking to a guy who tried to sell software to the federal government for a year and a half. Yeah. It would have dramatically changed the way they collect information. You know, it's still, and impacted people's jobs. Uh, in theory, could have impacted people's jobs. Yeah. And the, the people you had to talk to were the people whose job it was yeah. that you would be disrupting. And, and surprise, surprise, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for dramatically reforming the business practices. Yeah, It's, it's a reminder that, that there, there's nothing easy in, in management and administration. And I have this memory of, of being at OMB and we changed one of our circulars to remove some requirements because we were trying to streamline and we were trying to reduce you know, unnecessary bureaucracy. And I'll I'll protect the uh, the uh, the innocent uh, in terms of the agents, but I got a call from a a, fi a CFO shop of the federal agency complaining that we had proposed to eliminate these requirements. I said, oh, I thought, I mean, we came to the conclusion they were redundant and now unnecessary. He said, well, that's not our complaint. You're by doing, we have a whole office of people set up that are responsible for this requirement, and if you eliminate it, then we have nothing to these people don't have a job who, anymore who, who would think it's a good idea to call OMB and announce that yeah it was yeah. <laughs> I was a really little, tell me more about that office how many people yeah are there? right <laughs> well I mean I was somewhat stunned by it and not really much because but, but my immediate reaction was wouldn't it be great to take these people and reskill them and repurpose them uh, to a higher and better use but that involves you know that's not an easy thing to do you know, and, and I think there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's easy for me to say, why don't you reskill these individuals? Um, it's, not, it's not necessarily something that's going to happen overnight. But, it, but it's the, it was the right thing to do. You know, updating and, and modernizing your requirements and streamlining them and getting rid of unnecessary bureaucracy is always the right thing to do. But even when you have the right thing to do, there's still some type of impact and a pain point that you create mm -hmm. that you need to work with and manage. The, the notion of a kind of a win-win-win where you come up with something that everyone's a winner um, is just is very elusive and very rare. Well, to go back to Treasury, we had an example where we studied the, um, a particular product we sold, uh, which was a paper savings bond. Um, and what we found was that the paper savings bond actually was much more in, was much less secure, um, that all savings bonds could be available digitally, that they were distributed more widely, that they were dramatically more accessible. Even if you didn't have a uh, personal digital device, you could still go to the bank and get the equivalent of a, of a digital savings bond. Yeah. 
there was a whole apparatus, though, designed to go around and sell the bonds. Yeah. And that actually had uh, non inconsiderable cost associated with it. So when we eliminated the bonds, we actually got uh, a call from a couple of senators that you wouldn't normally be, would think would be on the side of keeping a, Keep a, the paper. an inefficient federal program. Yeah saying, why are you getting rid of this program? Yeah. And um, it, it, it simply fact, the simple fact was it was, it was uh, at some level protecting a contractor. And um, I, I think that that's one of the big challenges you always face in any time you're starting messing with the status quo. That status quo has a variety of different um, uh, uh, entities, uh, locales, built into its ecosystem and they have an expectation yeah. that it's going to keep going. It's funny like how sometimes the government will modernize and catch you by surprise because just this past weekend I went to a national park and we're driving up to the the front gate and where you got to pay you know pay an entry fee per car and in my mind I'm thinking like do I have cash? Right. Because I'm not sure. I'm out in the Did middle of... Did they take of, Venmo now? Well, well yeah. no. Here's what happened. I, in my mind, I'm already, uh, right. you know, kind of defaulting to, I wonder if they take cash. Right. You know, I mean, do I have enough cash? Right. Because they're going to... Because they're probably not going to take credit card. I'm in the middle of nowhere, right? right? Instead, I see the sign as I get closer that says, no cash, credit only. Interesting. Yeah. So it was my... So when I pulled right. up, I couldn't help. I asked. I said, I just, so credit only, huh? And, and the guy was, you know, very forthcoming. And he said, yeah, it's actually more efficient and it's safer. He's like, we don't want cash on hand yeah. here. Yeah. It's and, safer both for the person behind the booth and ultimately for the taxpayer. Yeah. Although there are some interesting equity issues associated with no cash. And what's that? Well, uh, not everyone has access to credit. Oh, that's a, that's a fair you point. Need to be, yeah. You oh, you need mean, to oh, have yeah, a certain like equity, citizenship yeah. status. You need to have a certain amount of economic ability. So it's actually a really interesting thing. I when I was see, at, I didn't even think of that. I oh, thought no, I had I, come up with a win-win-win. No, when and I, you point out that, that <laughs> you know it's like when I was at Metro, I was trying to get rid of cash everywhere. I was trying to get it yes. off the property because cash is really expensive to handle. It makes it dangerous for the people who are handling it, and it puts a lot of people at some kind of moral hazard. It's too. so funny. It reminds me of I don't know if you watch the television show The Good Place. Do you watch yeah, The Good Place? Yeah, I've seen the a most, few episodes. Oh, in the most recent season, I don't know if I'm spoiling it for anyone, but you know they they realize that nobody can actually get to the good place because in in today's world. Like everything has an everything you do mm. has a negative implication. Right. Like if you order something in the menu, then uh, then right. the, 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 those, those animals are mistreated. Right, 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 right. You know, if you buy a, a purse or something, it's like somewhere yeah. in the supply chain there's child labor. And like, I mean, but I would be careful of not using that as an excuse not to care. What do you mean? Like, well, since everything is well, be I know this is a television show, but it just place, reminded so well me of like I'm all excited that the federal government is now just on credit because. They've thought Sorry. of the policy, it's more efficient, and you point out, like, I'm denying access to, <laughs> to the unbanked, exactly. you know? <laughs> you are. <laughs> Monster. Now I'm not going to get into the good place. <laughs> well, you're one step back. Yeah. I'm sure you'll find another way. Well, why don't we take a break for a second and figure out what we're going to talk about in the Well, I think half. we should talk, we should get deeper into 
kind of like what the right answer is to modernize government in a way that protects federal employees. And I think you touched on it with this example of maybe the fact that the world is more modern and there is more mobility, that we can not, maybe we need to think 10 years from now of where we're going in terms of the ability of workers to to be more geographically neutral. And I think it's actually 10 years ago. So let's talk about it. Great. GovActually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. Uh, so we're back, and we were just getting fired up about uh, about your idea, and I'm um, of digging deeper into how can government kind of modernize its relationship to its customers. You know, I. I used to say at GSA, our our first platform for service delivery was the building. And then that platform, as government grew, shifted to acquisition um, because the government needed more help to deliver these services. And then the third platform was technology. And that more and more, people would rely on an interaction with their government that's more like their interaction with, with business today which is even if you're going to buy something in the store, you've probably checked it out on the internet first. Yeah. And as it goes to this question, so let's go back in time to when you were consider, you were planning to merge these two bureaus within Treasury. And the assumption was made that in order, so this is back 2010 to 2012, and the assumption that you made at the time was in order to capture the savings, we need to shut down the building in Hyattsville, Maryland, move X number of employees out so we can shut them down, and then and then can move them over to Parkersburg because they need to be in Parkersburg. And so so that was part of the savings, right? Yeah. So that, I would I would say that what we did was we turned it over to the fiscal assistant secretary and yeah. said, okay, you're in charge of these two bureaus. Um, these two bureaus, you know, particularly the Bureau of Public Debt, which used to sell all these paper bonds, right? Yeah. We, you know, we're like, we're not selling the paper bonds anymore, right? It's all electronic, so you don't need the big printing presses. Right, you get rid of them. those, yeah. In the fa- on the financial management service, we had also eliminated the paper checks for Social Security. That one we were really worried about. I don't, I don't know if you remember that whole exercise, but there was this deep, deep fear that how can you possibly get rid of the paper check for Social Security? Um, we actually went and checked in with AARP, and they basically said, look, we're not going to support this, but we're not going to fight it. Okay. <laughs> and at the end of the day, um, there was barely a peep. So that then, between those two applications of technology to the very, very direct work of those two bureaus suddenly meant that you, know, you had these big buildings filled with essentially buggy makers right. in a world of cars. And so you can shut them down. And so what we said to them is like, look, we, you know, we don't have as much work as we have people. We should probably bring them together because for each one of them, you had an administrative hierarchy uh, of budget people and procurement people. Well, what I'm saying is let's say there was 50 employees that, that mm-hmm. at the time were told, okay, you've built a life in Hyattsville, Maryland. You've been here. You're commuting mm-hmm. here. And now the world has changed. Paper is now electronic. Your right. job is different. And in order to stay employed uh, with this organization, you need to you need to move to Parkersburg 
to the central office and, and, and reinvent right. your career in this, in this path, right? And that is extraordinarily disruptive to, uh, to those individuals, and it removes uh, taxpayers from, uh, from a constituent congressional district and has all these implications. So but I, just, I, okay. I was trying to make a separate point that there are two kinds of changes. One is the work is gone. Right. We just don't do it. You don't do it anymore. Right. The second is your work now because you, there's not sufficient critical mass. Right now you're just four people doing this, and we have a group of forty over here. It makes sense to put the four with the forty. And, and what I'm suggesting is, 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 is there a different solution today than there was back then? Which is instead of telling these individuals that the path is either leave the organization or move to Parkersburg and maybe you have seven years to move and that eases the, the burden, but move to Parkersburg. Instead, it's you can, you can move to Parkersburg and we'll support that and you'll have a job there. Or you can stay in the national capital region. Your new office space is this, ho- is this kind of you know, GSA hoteling, you know, kind of where you check in, Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have your own office, but you're always guaranteed a workstation. You now report up to someone in Parkersburg, Mm -hmm. um, but you don't necessarily have to be there because the way we work in the world today with Skype and Meet Me and all these, you know, and and the way in which our, this job has evolved, you can do it from anywhere. Do all the people who work for you work in your same office building? Some t- no, I mean, that's the that's my point. Yeah, it's exactly. Like they're, they're, no, no, everyone's I, everywhere. I mean, it's it is interesting that this um, this idea seems kind of radical when you think about it in the context of the federal government, but it is actually, to your point, it's pretty much Diriger standard market yeah. practice. I think we're trying to find find the equilibrium uh, in 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 this question of co-location. And what I mean by that, I'll, I'll, I'll throw another issue on the table. It's my understanding that that organizations are now kind of scaling back uh, telework uh, mm-hmm. a bit because maybe we we found that, you know, there was a certain amount of productivity gains, morale gains that were achieved, but then like maybe it went a little bit too far. But and- I, I want to talk about that because that was something we had. You know, we made 100% of GSA, including the, the administrator, uh, telework. Tell we all had right. telework. I thought I heard dogs barking in the background yeah. when I talked to you yeah, back exactly, then. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, that was the bring your dog to work. Oh, okay, day. okay, bring your dog to work day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It wasn't you at home. Another private I picture, yeah. Whenever I'm on the, the phone with someone who's teleworking and I hear the dog barking, yes. I always feel like this is one of the, right. you know, and then, then then I start picturing them by the pool with a cocktail. Exactly, you exactly. Know. Well, that's, I think, and it goes down image. a dark road. Yeah. That's everyone's image. And so... The argument I get back is like, well, how do you know that your people are working if they're all teleworking? And and my point was like, wow, if you literally have to see your people and stand over them to determine whether they're yeah. working or not, that's not a problem with geographically where they are. Yeah. That's a problem with an ability to measure productivity, an ability to manage, an ability to determine what the actual product is. Now, I I think that you can't have people who run the printing press telework, right? That's a, yeah. we're not quite there yet. But I think you can have people maybe doing economic research telework. Yeah. In fact, you know, some of the best university economic researchers are not at the university most of the time. They're out, you know, doing economic research. Yeah. Um, you know, they have office hours maybe. So, you know, so this is where 
This is where the um, Bureau of Public Debt Financial Management Service, Fiscal Service one, might differ a little bit than the um, uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis for Agriculture. And that's when you begin to ask the question, so, well, what's the actual motivation? And won't question that in any way, but I know that that's what the, that's what the congressional concern is. It's, yeah. it's not just the disruption of people's lives. It may not just be the loss of a lease that someone was, you know, gaining some economic benefit from. It might be that, you know, other alternatives for people doing this work and not having to move to Kansas City may or may not have been explored. Yeah, and that, that's what I'm suggesting, that there may be, you know, I th I'm a big fan of co-location. I feel like mm -hmm. there are specific uh, productivity gains that, that are achieved by being in the same room, mm -hmm. seeing the body language, having more fluid communication, um, and then when someone is remote and they're dialing in or Skyping in, it's, it's not ideal. But balancing all, all various factors, you can make it work. And but you can I, be very successful in meeting your mission. And, and on net, when you factor in other things, besides my personal preference for people to be co-located, yeah. it can be the right solution. Actually, my preference around co-location was one that was deeply antithetical to other agencies, which was not just internal agency co-location, but cross-agency co-location. Yeah. So I thought, actually that the Johnson administration had done something pretty brilliant by building the federal office building, yeah, which brought all these new regional agency offices together, together yeah. in one place in the city. And, and the next evolution of that would have been to blast through the walls that, that had a common, you had common conference rooms, you had maybe even a common personnel office. Yeah. Why do you need a separate personnel office for, you know, the regional ag office and the regional dot office and the when they're all in theory using opm hiring standards yeah and so i thought that would be the place where technology could really open the door for efficiency um and shared services yeah so in the case of this these ag economists one argument is like look if you want to study economics and markets you have to be you know here's where all the other economists are it's the it's like the um it's like the, uh, to use this again, the antique stores. You know? Like <laughs> yeah. if you want to go antiquing, you want to go a place where there's four antique stores, not with No, them. and I, I think that is part of, of a solution um, that kind of, that, that, you know, this kind of concept of, of hoteling or these co-location that, that can be part of the future where if you're mm -hmm. a federal employee, even in D.C., let's say you're a federal employee in, in uh that 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 reports to someone in Kansas City, you can you could work from home or you could be required to report in to an office space yeah. where they have the right technology and that you're you know arguably not as as distracted if you're at home or whatever. But it raises I have an interesting thought. Maybe someone's already thought of this, but you know how how there's this assessment that um, that all agencies are required to do that OMB uh, provides the criteria for in terms of whether something's inherently governmental. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like 
if, if there's a 76, like there are certain activities that a contractor can't do. It has to be done by, right. and I used to, when I used to talk to people about a 76, even though it's not executive branch, I used to use the a courthouse as an example. And I would say at one end of the spectrum, you have the person doing landscaping outside the courthouse, right. clearly not inherently governmental, clearly could be hired by a contractor. Then you have the security inside the court. And that's like a little bit more in the gray area. Can the court security people be hired externally and be contractors and then you'd be governmental? A little gray. The, the judge the judge has to be government it cannot you cannot contract that out and so i used to think about so many times whenever you buy a product particularly over the web you're agreeing to a private sector third-party adjudication of any dispute oh okay that's interesting i didn't even know that so you're always challenging my (laughs) anyway my point is just trying to getting getting to my point is like maybe there should be an assessment of whether a a role is geographically mm. neutral or not and so then if you if you have a determination mm. that the job that you have is geographically neutral then if in the and when someone's consolidating you wouldn't necessarily have to move this sounds like one of those really annoying omb things that I, you dump I, on some poor assistant secretary it, it, of management to yes like out. i need your i need the your inventory g- geographic neutrality of positions of all 110,000 people that fine make fun of it <laughs> but i actually think it potentially solves a problem in right. terms of allowing and 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 the, the the thing is, is you might say, but you're you're not going to get the savings if you're not closing down the buildings. I'm saying you can still close down the buildings. Yeah. You just create this kind of more efficient well, hoteling I environment. I actually think I actually think the the harder part. I mean, I think you could go and do that exercise. The harder part is closing down the buildings. So we had an exercise where we took all the different regional offices, the public facing regional offices, the Social Security Administration offices, the the Soil Conservation Service offices, the Ag Extension Service offices. And what's interesting to me that this this issue is around some particular office in, in Washington in, in the Ag Department when there are literally thousands of these local and regional offices. And part of the reason why they probably didn't go into that is because there is a, a law that says if you're going to close down a regional agriculture office, an assistant secretary has to go to the office and host a meeting in the community. Right. Um, and actually have a... So if you have 7,000 offices and you want to try to consolidate 7,000 offices... 7,000 public meetings? 7,000 public meetings. That's fun. Yeah, yeah, 20 years worth of yeah. work if you do it every day of the... Uh, yeah, and that, and day. that, yeah. And there are certain federal organizations that have loca- that type of distributed location, whether it's a Social Security office or an ag mm-hmm. office, and they're almost in every postal zip code. Oh, and yeah. that's a, that, that, is, that is a kind of a different type of challenge. But, but what we're talking about, we're consolidating big bureaus... I'm suggesting that there may be a different business case in 2019 and going forward mm-hmm. than there was 10 years ago well, we, because of this concept of creating pooled space, right. workstations versus everyone gets a 10 by 10 office. Um, and then if you have a, a, a Danny Werfel designated <laughs> geographically neutral position, right. I can't wait for the Tanglerini. The tank in the Tanglerini administration, twenty twenty four. Right. You hire me to right. be OMB director. Now this is this will be my first act. Beginning to sound political here. We yeah, be that's careful. true. We got personnel. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, the interesting point is that we 
did an analysis looking at federal office buildings, and we found that the owned federal office buildings in Washington, D.C., if they adopted a more aggressive um, shared space approach, yeah. the owned federal office buildings could house the entire federal That's workforce amazing. in the national capital region. That's amazing. Right? And that all the other buildings, all the hundreds of thousands, millions of square feet of rental space was really because we had roughly 300 square feet per person yeah. across Because if you drive area. down Constitution Avenue yeah. and you're like, okay, there's the Commerce Department and then there's EPA and then there's Justice example. and then there's the IRS yeah. and it's like, and they're all, if you're an IRS employee, you got to go in the IRS. If you're the Justice yeah. Department, you got to go in the Justice And there's this kind of you know, question you can ask, like, why? Well, why can't why can't people intermingle in these buildings? The Treasury Department. I, I mean, again, these numbers are are rough scale, not actual numbers. At its peak, it had something close to three thousand people working in it, and that's when they printed the cash on the fourth floor, and they actually you could go and get gold. You could trade gold in for mm. for for cash, or you could trade cash in for specie at, yes. the, at the at the cash room. Um, when I got there in 2009, there were just over 600 people. In there. Wow. And that was because, you know, <laughs> these epic offices. Oh, I know. They're which, massive which and beautiful been, which and historic. Which had been crammed, filled with, you know, clerks who were busy and scribes, yeah. you know, scribbling on. Well, what you'd have to do in some, you'd have to designate some of the offices as like historic and not to be like cubicled. Right. But you could mainly offices. So this is my other designation. Occupy, right? In addition to designating <laughs> employees as geographically neutral, in your, in all of your real estate, you have to designate whether the office is a historic did you, landmark. Did you or see not. the GSA administrators after the, the, the traditional oh, yeah. one? Yeah, the giant like, like seventeen. Hey Dan, I see feet, you down there. But I didn't sit in. I sat I know in you the did cubicle it. with I know you did. with other people. Um we saved the office for events and for yeah. for big meetings. But you meetings. could have cubicled that up and put uh, people in yeah, there. Yeah, well, we d- we essentially did because we would always have 30 or 40 or 50 people in it because we had meetings. Well, there you go. You used it for so conference space, exactly. and therefore you could use other conference space exactly. for office space. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why. Now, we had 80% of the seats were, were um, unassigned, and it was based on data that using card swipes, we found that at the peak, do you want to know what peak day was for occupancy of the GSA headquarters? Wednesday? Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday afternoon. And you would get to something close to like 50% occupancy. So by ripping out all the walls and by creating the shared space, we're able to collapse out of two and, leases. And it's possible to know, but I would imagine that in 1995, 2005, 2015, on a Tuesday afternoon, 50% it trended lower. Because yeah. of the mo- because the because the right. workforce is increasingly mobile right. because of telework because you can now take your work with you with your mobile device. Well, that was the other thing is when when we had snow related closures, the expectation was that people still worked. Yeah. Oh, I know. That's a new thing. Because yeah. we gave everyone a laptop, and I remember one person claim you know expressing their concern that we'd taken away the snow day, and uh, you know I thought that that was actually. Um, that's like the agency calling me and saying, keep exactly. those requirements exactly. so I can keep that redundant office exactly open. Right. I want to keep the office of doing nothing going. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I do think that this is still a very, very interesting, important area. But in order to dive into it, and, and I'm sure there, 
people are wishing they hadn't um, uh, in certain areas. Uh, I know sometimes when we were working on the BPD FMS thing, it was like, wow, no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. We're trying to make a more efficient government. I, I will say this, I, and it was maybe a parting thought. I, when I read the article about the agriculture situation, I, I, I always try to see every side of an issue. Mm-hmm. And, and it is, I think, important that in an ongoing way that people are coming to fight and advocate for the federal employee. Right. You know, whether it is the union, whether it's the employee themselves, whether it's the member of Congress, because because overall smart decisions will be made about how to best equip, protect, engage the federal worker if there's advocacy for them in this space. And if they just get rolled over every time. Right. Uh, at the same time, we have to modernize. We have to change. Yeah. We have to adapt to, to new realities. And I think there there is this potential win-win with the way on this question of, of, of forced moves and consolidations that the way in which work is done is different and technology has enabled a more mobile environment to um, to, to mitigate some of that damage by thinking differently about this mobile workforce. Yeah, and, and that's and that's what I haven't seen um, in at least in any of the coverage of the of the ag thing. You know, yeah. what you see is uh, a lot of concerns about policy positions that aren't related to the modernization of government. And so I think the bigger issue is that there really isn't a comprehensive and thoughtful um, consideration of how do we modernize the yeah. United States federal government. That's part of our ongoing kind of quest here at GovActually is to try to remind folks that this is a very, very large and complicated machine with lots of moving parts. And if you're going to go wade in with a wrench and start messing around, you have to be careful about what the implications are. But that's not a reason not to tune it up. Right. And the government has modernized. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, it does incredible things and leverage. I mean, it could be better, obviously, and the, and the path to get from point A to point B could be shorter and more cost effective, but but the government is very different today than it was in the 1990s. It is not standing still. The way we do work is different. Mm-hmm. Just walk through GSA headquarters and yeah. you can see it. The fact that everyone issued a laptop, the snow day is gone. Right. You know, it just these are. These are changes, and we've adop- we've adopted them. Well, as a former IRS commissioner, you know that the size of the IRS has been essentially static, yeah. and frankly declining, while the number of taxpayers and the number of pages of regs yeah. have been, you know, dramatically increasing over time. Yeah, and that well, that and that has a variety of different tensions, and the IRS adopts, you know, using e-platforms and automated ways of of bringing data in and populating and 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 you know figuring out how to use technology so that as people leave and we can't refill them and our budget remains static to to make up for that for that gap but you could also look at the way the tax gap is growing and you mm-hmm. could say we're not optimized well, the I- budget they, they couldn't be investing more in whether it's IRS technology or IS enforcement and those dollars would have a return on investment for taxpayers. Uh, and as well as IRS technology. I mean, there's some interesting question about how much of the workforce is dedicated to a system that's kept antiquated because uh, by improving the technology, you might take away the market from a number of people who provide technology. Potentially, but you know, but you're also, you have an aging workforce. Mm-hmm. 
um, and and you have to protect the mission. And as people retire, uh, you you may not be able to at your current budget or just based on recruiting bring in the same number of people. Yeah. Um, so finding that right balance is, as I always say, whether you want small government or big government, small agency or big agency, you want it to work effectively. Right. And so making those right investments is, is key. Well, I appreciate the uh, time, Danny, and, and uh, thanks, Billy, for uh, your... Yeah, good your, luck with the move. Your silence. Do you uh, get to stay? I assume you're, you know, you're not t- totally disrupted. Your, your commute's not that much worse. No, he, he's, he's using a laptop. He's yeah, he doesn't. I mean, Billy's very mobile. Yeah, exactly right. I think it's uh, it's easier to walk from the metro, too. So. Yeah. All right. All right. Enjoy K Street. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about it.